everybody's back out tonight. If you picked up an outline and you noticed uh, that the title of the lesson tonight is The Pauline Privilege of Divorce, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, didn't we hear that a couple of weeks ago? Uh, you did, uh, at least part of it, and uh, it was at the time I was simply addressing a question, it was the only part of it I was going to look at, and then several, and I, I, wanna, I don't want to exaggerate that, but I think it was about five different people came up to me and said, you are going to talk more about 1 Corinthians 7, or will you talk more about it, or will you look at, and, and specifically, a couple of what are considered maybe some harder verses within that chapter about divorce. And since there appeared to be uh, you know, some interest in looking at that, and as I remarked to Wes and a couple of other people, uh, I don't think in our day and time you can talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage too much. Um, I decided to go back to it tonight and look at it. I thought it was interesting as we were, um, as Wes was bringing the lesson this morning and uh, talking about holy matrimony, and I guess most of you were here, if not all of you. Um, and Wes, there was a section in his sermon where he was talking about the idea of making that lifelong commitment and so forth, the vows that you take, and talking about the grass being greener on the other side and uh, not that Wes was encouraging you to find greener grass, but he was talking about how some people see, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side and so forth. And I guess that's where we are, really, in our society. It, it is, marriage is, people enter into marriage for all kinds of reasons. Probably not nearly as much is there the belief that marriage is for life, regardless of the vows we may end up taking uh, before a preacher or, or some administrative uh, person somewhere. But there is also the sentiment with many people entering into marriage that if you don't like it and it doesn't work out, if it's not good, it's not everything it was cracked up to be, some of what Wes was talking about this morning, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Well, none of us do. I mean, how can you know what it's going to be like to be married to someone for 20 years when you've never been married to someone? You know. But the idea that I can always get out of it. And I can get out of it, you know, because the laws are such now that uh, it's very easy to do so, it's very cheap to do so, and uh, there may be some, you know, busy work and heart, a little bit of heartache that goes with it or whatever, and there may not be, but it's fairly easy to get out of it. I want to go back and reiterate a couple of things I said about three weeks ago. If we're looking at divorce, and we'll get to 1 Corinthians 7 very quickly, but if we're looking at divorce, we're looking at... And we might just ask the question, how does God feel about it? What does God think of it? You may remember I cited Malachi 2. I won't go back and read that passage. But where God comes against His people and He says, you've dealt treacherously, traitorously, some translations say. You've broken your covenant. You might ask me, God says, in what? What have we done? In that you have betrayed the wife of your covenant. You've uh, dealt treacherously, the King James says, with the wife of your youth, etc., God goes on to say in verse 16 there to express his most basic sentiment about divorce. Anytime anybody ever asks me, how do I feel about divorce, I, I almost 100% answer back and say, well, I know how God feels about it. I can tell you how I feel about it, but it's more important to know how God feels about it. And very simply put, God hates it. So anytime we find something that God hates, then we're not looking at something that you know, is just something that doesn't matter. You know, we're not looking at something that God is okay with whatever you do. And all of the, the flippant, trite things that people do come up with about it, you know. 
The idea of God wouldn't want me to stay in a bad marriage. God, you know, wants me to be happy. And all of those things that we hear people so commonly say that I don't hear in Scripture. I mean, I can't find a verse where God says, if you're in a bad marriage, I want you to be happy, get out of it. But I can find a verse where God says, I hate divorce. And so it is something that is very serious. When we look at 1 Corinthians 7, and you may want to open to that passage. We're going to spend, spend the bulk of our time there. I'll, I'll look at a few verses getting there. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 7, and many people today go to 1 Corinthians 7, I think I said three weeks ago that I, that I had a professor that did just this when I was in Bible school. And the idea of finding exceptions, finding reasons that one might, allowances, maybe someone would say, for divorce and trying to find them in 1 Corinthians 7. So, we look at this passage and we say, is there a quote-unquote, because this is what my professor called it, a Pauline privilege of divorce? The answer is no. And I'll tell you that from the beginning of the lesson. There is no Pauline privilege. There is what God says, there is not what God says. And when we look at Scripture... We want to be clear about what Scripture teaches. So I start with the basic sentiment, God hates divorce. Let me run through a couple of other things, some of which I said last time I won't spend anywhere near as long on. Let me add a, another passage to that that someone came to me with and said, you didn't mention this passage. And I said, no, but I will. You know. When we start talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, if we look at the question being posed to Jesus, I said this last time, I'll say it again very quickly. Wes even went to the passage this morning in Matthew 19. They came to Jesus. They said, is it lawful to divorce for every cause? And Jesus immediately appealed to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.24, have you not heard, have you not read that he which talked about it said from the very beginning that uh, man is to leave father and mother and be joined, cleave unto, be glued to literally his wife. And that's the covenant that he makes when he enters into marriage, whether he stands before me or Wes or the justice of the peace or whatever, when he or she says, I do or I will, like Wes was talking about, there is an, there is an agreement made before God. There is a covenant made, and God expects us to be faithful to that covenant. So Jesus quoted it, as if to say, is it lawful for man to divorce for every cause? No, it never has been. And even though they will argue Moses, and I think they misunderstand Moses in Deuteronomy 24, I'm pretty certain of that, that they misunderstand. Jesus says marriage hasn't changed. From the very beginning, God created man and woman, just like Wes said this morning. They are bound to one another in marriage, and they're, they're bound for life. If we want to talk about what Paul would say, we might look at Romans 7 and look at verses 2 and 3. And the idea there is one man for one woman for one life or lifetime. And that if a, a woman or a man for that matter divorces his spouse and is married to another, if a woman in the case of Romans 7, if she does that, she shall be called an adulteress because she has broken the covenant. She is, and the word in that passage, she is bound, literally tied together as though they were welded. And it is a term where you can even use for a piece of metal being welded to another piece of metal. They are bound so long as they would be alive. And that's what Jesus teaches. He taught it clearly in Luke 16 and other passages. And when questioned, 
In Matthew 19, Jesus made it very clear what God has joined or bound together. Let not man put asunder. So go with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 6. And I like, I say I like, I, I use Mark 6. Let me just say it like that. I go to Mark 6 frequently when I'm talking with people about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I do for a couple of reasons. One, because it echoes the truth in the Bible. In other words, this is a prophet of God. But what I like to say to people is, this is not just a question being posed. You know, when they came to Jesus and they posed the question, or when Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 7, it is speaking of it in theory, so to speak, if you will. I mean, it's the rules. It's like if anybody would come and say, what's the law about so-and-so? And you began to quote the Constitution. But this is a real-life situation. In other words, I've had people who would hear Romans 7 or 1 Corinthians 7 or Matthew 19 or whatever and say, well, that's not the real world. You know, that's just not a real-life situation. Well, Mark 6 is. So let's look at Mark 6 for a moment. And if we go down, if you remember in Mark 6, in verse 14, Wes mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks. I know he did in in a lesson. But look at verse 14. King Herod heard of him, him being, of course, the Lord. For his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And others said, no, it's Elijah, as if though he were risen from the dead. Or it's a prophet, or one of the prophets. But Herod heard it, and he said, no, it's John, verse 16. I want you to focus closely with me on this short little passage for the next couple of verses. It is John whom I beheaded, he's risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison, notice, for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. I'm going to draw on the board, and I'm just going to draw some circles just to illustrate, and I'm sure we all understand what's going on here, but let's just you know, make it abundantly clear. You've got King Herod, and he's married to a woman named Herodias. And Herodias, in order to marry Herod, had left Philip. Philip was Herod's brother. She had left Philip, divorced him. And we know this, Josephus talks about it. Uh, Put it be there. Josephus talks about it, historians record it. So there's no question what happened here. She divorced Philip. She, under Roman law, married Herod. Now that's not... Unlike what happens today. Somebody, the grass is greener on the other side. Somebody leaves their husband. A woman leaves her husband. She divorces him. And in turn, she marries another man. Now let's read it again and see if this is not exactly what it's saying in verse 17. Herod had thrown John into prison. Because John had spoken against this marriage. And notice, for Herod... He bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, the woman here, Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now I want you to notice the way John, the, 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 uh, that Mark is describing this by inspiration. Or if you want to say it like this, how the Holy Spirit is still describing this situation. And that's what I like to say to people. This is a real life situation. She is married to Herod. 
she, as we would say today, was married to Philip. Philip is her ex, as so many people would say. But if you notice the way the Holy Spirit is saying it, and Mark is recording it here, notice, Herod had married her, but she was Philip's wife. His brother, Philip's wife. So we like to say it like this, and I use this language. In God's sight, whose wife is she? Now, under Roman law, and they lived under Roman law, under Roman law, she had legally divorced Philip. We know that even, as I say, from a historical account. She had legally divorced her first husband, and she had legally married her second husband. But by inspiration, in verse 17... You'll notice Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And I can tell you right now that in the language in the original, as present tense, she still is Philip's wife, as far as God is concerned. So that's why we like to say in the sight of God, she is married to Philip. Really, the technical language we ought to use, if we want to use biblical language, she's still bound to Philip. That's the point. The covenant that is recognized by God is that Herodias is bound to Philip. Ain't neither one of them dead, and neither one of them have legally broken the bond that God made between them. So when we look at this in Mark 6, it's a real-life situation. Well, John spoke against it. John the Baptist, of course. John had said to Herod, verse 18, It is not lawful. Now, he doesn't mean by legal law, Roman law, or as we would say today, American law, because by American law, it was legal. She was married to Herod. But he says it's not lawful for you to have her. And you'll notice he says very clearly, it is not lawful for you to have, notice again, your brother's wife. In other words, they don't miss it here. Herod doesn't miss what John is saying. That's why he throws him into prison. What John is saying is, she's not your wife, Herod, she's your brother's wife, still. Even though you've divorced, you know, she's divorced and you've married. And Herodias got it, because Herodias wants him dead for saying it. So Salome go out there and dance and all of that stuff, and, uh, you know, I asked for the head of John on a platter, and she did. They don't miss it. So very clearly, in a real-life situation, a prophet of God comes along. Here is a person who's divorced their husband and married someone else. And very clearly, the prophet of God, by inspiration, is saying, it's not recognized in heaven. She still is Philip's wife. Now, having said all of that, then we go back to the passage that Wes read for us a moment ago. Go back, if you're in Mark, you're not far from Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew chapter 19, either one. You can look at either one, but I'll turn to Matthew 5. And here's the idea in Matthew chapter 5 of Jesus' law about marriage, just that to start with, and about also divorce and remarriage. First of all, like Wes was talking some about this morning with the marriage and vicariously, you know, window shopping and all of that kind of thing that Wes was, was speaking of. People do that. And Jesus said, the answer, my answer to that is, if you look on a woman to lust, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. You're married... Let your desire be to your, your wife, and that's the only one. 
There is no window shopping and all of that kind of stuff that ought to go on in marriage. But what about divorce? Well, we drop down to verses 31 and 32 here. And Jesus is very clear. It's been said, whosoever shall put away or divorce his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. And notice it had been said that. To a degree, Moses says that, but I think there's a misapplication. I'm not going to get off into that tonight. But, give her, but, but here's what I say. Well, whether we understand all of that or we have all that right about Deuteronomy 24 and, you know, did it mean this, did it mean that? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. Verse 32. Whosoever shall divorce his wife except for, King James, saving for, the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced. That would be what I've got written on the board here. Herod married her that had been divorced. Notice. Commits adultery. So we don't have to wonder about the law of God. It's very clear. It's very clear in commandment. Matthew 5, again in Matthew 19. One exception to that for fornication, for adultery, committed by, you know, the guilty party, as we like to say, etc., But apart from that, in this case in history, she just left Philip. It was more advantageous. Herod had a bigger position, a greater position, etc. She just left Philip and married Herod. And that's that's what happened. And that's what happens a lot of times today. It would be no different than a situation in a company where a woman is married to a junior executive and leaves him and goes to somebody up the ladder. That's basically what happened with these people. And in this case, of course... The two men she ended up married to, on occasion, happened to be brothers. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, because the passage we were looking at and the next question comes out of 1 Corinthians 7, so let's look at it. I went through this, and I'm not going to reiterate all of the, you know, looking at the different terms for divorce we did talk about and the callings and so forth, and that had to do with, you know, the the question I was looking at last time. But I want to focus more on the idea... That, and, and I'll just say it as a blanket statement, then I'll show you why I say this. That Paul in this passage, I believe, I understand, is teaching the exact same thing that is consistent, for example, with Jesus' teaching we just looked at. And though someone might turn to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, well, it doesn't seem that way to me. And I can understand that because it can be difficult to understand, especially depending on how I'm approaching the passage. Let me talk a little bit more about that. But the point is, I believe he is teaching exactly the same thing. And I don't want to just say I think or I feel he is. I want to show you why I believe that he is. So to start with, the main focus comes down to verses 10 and 11. Now you notice Paul's Paul's talking about marriage. And again, that one man for one woman for one life. You know, let every woman have her own husband. Every man have have his own wife. We see that back in verses 2 and 3. But the question comes from verses 10 and 11. Let's read them, and then we'll look at them. Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart, a word for divorce. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. Let me start with a couple of terms here, and I just want to get that out of the way, because this is not a word study, so to speak, lesson. But let's look at a couple of terms. In verse 10, as I was talking about last time, let not the wife, notice, depart from her husband. Paul will use 
a couple of different terms in this passage, 1 Corinthians 7. They're very specific words, all used for divorce. And don't take my word for this. Go home and check it. But they are words that were used for divorce. In this particular term in verse 10, let not the wife depart, it meant to break the contract of marriage. It was a contractual term that was applied to marriage. And marriage is a contract. I even hear that language today when people will speak of the marriage contract. Well, it is a contract. And it is binding until it's broken, is the point. This was a term that was used in Corinth under Roman law for divorce. Very clearly so. So when he is saying in verse 10, because we think of depart as maybe leave. And the idea of, you know, I can't stand you, so I've got to get away from you for a while. That's not this depart here. The idea of two people who are separating for a time to work out their differences. You know, that kind of, this, that's not that word here. The word here is a legal term where someone would go before an official and literally break the contract of marriage. So let not the wife break the contract of marriage with her husband. Again, in verse 11, look at that. We're just looking at terms right now. But and if she depart, again, same idea, if she leaves and breaks the contract of marriage, let her remain unmarried. Now that in itself would show you what depart means, you see, because she's departed, so she is unmarried. Okay, so if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled. This is a, a rare use of reconcile in the New Testament, not necessarily outside the New Testament, but generally, when we see reconciled or reconciliation, we see it in two senses. One, the basic idea, we most commonly see it, of the idea of being reconciled to God. And we speak of, by sin, being enemies of God or at enmity with God. And we need to be reconciled or made friends again And, of course, we do that through obedience to God and through the blood of Jesus Christ. We also see it, though, on occasion used for two people who have had a quarrel with one another. And they are, again, making friends again with each other. But what the word literally means is the idea of removing one situation or exchange. If you were to look at the root of the word exchanging one situation for another. Now, without getting overly technical here, look at it in verse 11. If she divorces her husband, let her remain unmarried, or else exchange that state of being unmarried for a state of being married again. Okay, look at it in verse 11. Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now we'll come back and look at that in a second, but just notice that that's the idea, that's the meaning of the word. And again, a different word for divorce, but let not the husband divorce his wife, but yet still means divorce. Now, there are two questions, two main questions that enter verses 10 and 11, and I've confronted both of these in real situations over the years, and you probably have too. But when we look at these situations, the first one Is what you see in verse 10 when it says, Unto the married I command, and then he says, Yet not I, but the Lord. Now some want to twist that around and say, Well, there are different times in this passage 
When Paul is saying, this is my command, but it's not Jesus's. This is just what I think. And there are other times in this passage, and this would be one, and this would be ludicrous, that Jesus commands, I don't command it, you know, but Jesus does. Well, no, he's not saying that. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 17 for a moment. There's a grammatical construction here for emphasis. And when we look at at, uh, chapter 1, you may remember that in Corinth, they were divided, and uh, some were... I would just say lining up behind Paul. Some were lining up behind Apollos, behind Peter. And some, in some sectarian sense, were lining up behind Christ. And so a person would say, I am of Paul. And others, well, I am of Cephas. You know, that kind of thing. And then Paul goes on to make the statement that he's thankful that he didn't baptize but a very few of them so that only a very few of them could say, I am of Paul. Because Paul didn't die for you. And he made that clear. Paul wasn't crucified for you. And you're not baptized in the name of Paul. Now notice what he does with that in verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now ask yourself this question. Did Christ send Paul to baptize? Well, of course he did. The commission to the apostles, was to go into all the world. Paul was an apostle. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If he was an apostle and he was sent, he was sent with that commission. So how can Paul then say, Jesus didn't send me to baptize? It's a point of emphasis in Greek. And what you have to understand is what Paul is really saying is, Christ did not just send me to baptize. He didn't just send me to make a disciple so that people could go around and say, I am of Paul. But more importantly, he sent me to preach the gospel. Part of which is you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So you understand it's for emphasis. It's saying Christ did not just send me to baptize, but more importantly, in an overriding sense, the bigger picture is that Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and baptism is part of it. Now go back to chapter 7. Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Is he saying, and it would be, I think we can all see where it would be ludicrous, where he would say, I'm not commanding this, but Jesus does. As if to say, I've got something different from Jesus. And he doesn't. What he's saying is, To the married I command, but like in chapter 1, not just me, but more importantly, the bigger picture, the overriding sense, Jesus commands it. And what Jesus commands, that Paul certainly agrees to, is that the wife not divorce her husband. So when I look at verse 10, one of the two great questions that, that gets asked is, is this somehow something Jesus commanded past tense, but Paul does not now command. The answer is no. Paul is preaching the word that Jesus preached. Jesus began to preach the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus sent the apostles out to preach His word. And I think we can easily see that. Wes talked about it in John 16 here recently. The idea of going of Jesus commissioning the apostles and saying the Holy Spirit will come to you and tell you everything you need to know, that's where Paul was getting his commands. 
It's not Paul changing because of the times or the fact that maybe 40 years has passed or 35 years has passed since the crucifixion. Times haven't changed. He's not changing the basic law of God. Not just me that commands this. Jesus commanded this. Don't divorce your husband. Now perhaps the harder one, though, is the next verse. Because someone will say, okay, if that's the case, then why did he come right back in verse 11 and say, but and if she depart? As if to say, don't divorce your husband, ah, but if you do. You know, then this is your situation. This is the case then. And I've sat with people over the years who've looked at that passage, who've been in this exact situation that we're talking about, have looked at that passage and said, Paul would not tell you what you need to do if he were not accepting what you've done. Now, let that grab you for a second. In other words, that God is not going to say to you, if this is your situation, and it really wasn't okay, but if this was your situation, then here's what you need to do. It's separate from this situation over here. Yeah, sure. If I'm married, what God would be saying to me, verse 10, is don't divorce. But my situation is not don't divorce. Maybe I came to the Lord and I've been divorced. Or during the course of my life as a Christian, I get divorced. So now my situation is verse 11. It might have one time been verse 10, but now it's a completely different situation. I don't believe it's a completely different situation. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And and let's look at it. When we look at this in verse 10, we might say, what is the basic, underlying, overriding command? Simply put, to the married... Here's what I, and most importantly, the Lord say, don't divorce. That's it. I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 2 for a moment. Because I think you have a similar, very similar, construction here in 1 John 2. And you'll notice in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1, I'll give you time to get there, but 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And then he goes on to say, and, or but, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You might say, what does that have to do with divorce? Nothing. Okay. Well, yeah, a little bit, but not directly. But the construction is the same as in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. And here's why. If I were to say in 1 Corinthians 7, what is the overriding basic commandment there in verses 10 and 11... It is to the married, don't divorce. If I were to say, what is the basic overriding command to the Christian in 1 John 2? It is don't sin. That's the command. It is not, it's okay if you sin. It's acceptable if you sin. If you've sinned, you're now in a different situation, but that's all right too. In other words, understand what I'm saying in that. You know, you weren't, there was a time when you had not sinned, so you're in one situation. Now it's different, you're in another, but it's okay and acceptable with God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the basic overriding commandment is don't sin. And that's what God is saying to you and me all the time. Every situation, every day, God is saying do not sin. Okay? Sometimes we do. What does it mean if I have sinned? I've broken the commandment of God. 
Now parallel that to 1 Corinthians 7. To the married I command, not just me, but the Lord, do not divorce. Well, what if I divorce? I've broken the commandment of God. Now, if I've broken the commandment of God, I've got to do something about that. In the case of 1 John, what I've got to do about that is I've got to, chapter 1, verse 9, confess my sin. I've got to ask for forgiveness. And the blood of Jesus has got to cleanse me from my sin. So, basic commandment, don't sin. But if you do, then you need to be forgiven. And here's what you have to do. Now, holding that in mind, go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Basic overriding command, don't divorce. But if you do, let's say you have. And let's say that your situation is sometime in the past you were Herodias and you did this. Now let's complicate it because that's what happens, isn't it? Things get complicated. Now you learn the truth. You come to your senses. You repent or whatever it might be. And you're married to Herod knowing God does not accept that marriage. And God is saying to you, verse 11, remain unmarried because you have no right to be with that guy. Remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your husband. But you say, oh, but Philip is now married to uh, Mary Jane. And I can't be reconciled. And if you notice later in the passage, and someone asked me this in particular, is that what Paul means when he is saying, if the person, the unbelieving person departs, you are not under compulsion, under bondage. That's exactly what he means. I don't have, if I'm Herodias, I don't have to run to Mary Jane and start a war or run back to Philip and strangle his neck. I may go back to Philip and I may say, Philip, I've learned the truth. We didn't have a right to divorce. Philip said, I couldn't care less. Get out of here. I'm happy with Mary Jane. You're not under compulsion to try to drag him back like a slave into that situation. But you are under compulsion for verse 11 to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to That's your only choice. So if you're looking at it in verses 10 and 11, just to summarize, to say it again, to beat the horse to death, the command from God is don't divorce. I hate divorce, God says. You're married, stay married. Don't leave. What if he's not a Christian? Don't leave. What if he's not a good husband? Don't leave. What if I don't like him anymore? Don't leave. What if the grass is greener on the other side? Don't divorce. Because I hate it. And it's wrong if you do. What if I already have? Then your condition is remain unmarried. And if you've gotten yourself into an unlawful situation where you are living, remember the point of John to Herod and Herodias? You're an adulteress because you're in this marriage. And you don't have a right to be in it. And you've got to get out of it. Because your only alternatives are remain unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. Now, having said that, I will echo the sentiments of Weston this morning. And I've said plenty of times to people when they've looked at me and said, that's hard. And I agree it is. And that's why it's serious. 
you're here tonight and you're contemplating marriage, and I know we have two that are contemplating it up here that I love very much. But there are other people in the audience who are not married and who hope to be married someday. Be very serious about it. Very serious. Because regardless of how serious the laws of our land are, or regardless even of how serious I am, God is serious. God will bind two people together and He will mean for them to be bound until one of them dies. And all the laws that say otherwise will not change that. So when a a prophet of God comes along and said, oh, you're bound to somebody else, you're still his wife. And the two of you are living in adultery. And you say, oh, but the law allowed us to divorce and remarriage. Well, God did not. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage as well. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, 